Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 160 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We are back together in the same room again. Our smiles are big. Yes, it's so good to be back. It was great to be able to go to Illinois and help out mom. And we tag teamed my sister and I, so she's there now um, helping out mom. But thank you to everyone who expressed concern about mom. She's doing great. She's healing well. She's taking her physical therapy seriously. So um, she's definitely on the mend. I'm so glad to hear that. And I'm happy to have you back home. I'm so happy to be back. So we have a thank you to a new Patreon. Yes, big thank yous to Anne for becoming a Patreon supporter. We really appreciate it. Just a reminder to folks, if you go to our show notes, you can learn how to become a Patreon or on our website. And every little bit helps. We really do appreciate it. Absolutely, we do. And big announcement. Yes, we're going to announce our read-along for the third quarter of 2022. We always feel like there should be a drum roll, but we don't have that. So we'll just say it. (laughs) We put it out to vote. We had five books. Chris put together a really cool survey. We threw that into the newsletter at the end of June. We had, I think, 44 people participated. Yes, 44 votes. And the winner is The Seed Keeper by Diane Wilson. This book has been very popular. Goodreads reviews, off the charts. Yeah, the Goodreads rating as of this recording is 4.36 stars, which is really good. Yeah. Not that we choose our books by ratings or anything, but it's nice to see. Yeah. And this is published by Milkweed Press, who's the same press that published Braiding Sweetgrass, one of our other read-alongs that we loved so much. I just love their books. I've been to Milkweed. It's in Minnesota. If you get the chance to go, super cool bookstore. They put out other authors like Margaret Rankle, Robin Wall Kimmer, Braiding Sweetgrass and her other books. Ada Limon, our new poet laureate that was just announced. Yes, very exciting. And so we reached out to them to let them know our next read along and they kindly offered us a giveaway copy. Yes. So we'll be giving away a copy of the book to a lucky winner. And then also they kindly extended a free shipping option to our listeners. And this is if you order a copy of The Seed Keeper and or anything in their catalog. All you have to do is use the code SEEDKEEPERCOUGARS and you'll get free shipping. That will all be in the show notes as well. And we'll give you a link to Milkweed. Go look at their catalog. You won't regret it. (laughs) Yeah, that that was so nice of them to extend that. And great books, really. I mean, great content and also really well-designed books, too. They're all beautiful. They are beautiful. Reminder that they have that anniversary edition of Braiding Sweetgrass that had really great pictures and just a hardcover, beautiful. And also, part of why we chose this book as one of the options, I mean, ultimately, listeners chose, but... It is readily available in libraries. It also will be available on bookshop.org. Right now it's showing back order, but Milkweed let us know that it'll be back in their availability on July 26th, which is just a week after this episode drops. So if you want to buy through bookshop.org, we'll have that. We have a list on our bookshop page of all of our read-alongs and the Seed Keeper will be included there. You can buy it through the Book Cougars as well. Oh, the Zoom. Oh, the dates. Yeah. So the dates for our Zoom video conversation, book discussion of The Seed Keeper will be September 18th 
That's a Sunday, as usual, at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Just email us at bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to be a part of that. Again, that will also be in the show notes for this episode. We're going to discuss it on episode 165, which drops on September 27th. Seems far away. It's not. (laughs) I know. Time is just really flying by. It is. So we hope you join us. Just a reminder to people, if you do want to be part of the Zoom conversation, if you've been a part before, that doesn't grant you automatic entry. We just want you to email us so we know that you want to be a part of it. So please do let us know. And it's open to everyone. It's a really fun easygoing conversation. We'd love you to join us. Absolutely. And we'll put a Goodreads thread up as well if you want to just join that way. So this is episode 160, meaning it's another 10th episode, which means giveaways. Actually, I did it with an S because we're going to do two separate giveaways. Yes, we have two giveaways. The first is going to be for the Seed Keeper. And the second is going to be four books. For some reason, I just heard Anna Michael say, Two books we can't wait for you to read. Um, But these are four books, and I will share them here. Milo and Marcos and At the End of the World. This is by Kevin Christopher Snipes. This is a natural disaster dystopic type sci-fi book. A Little Bit Country by Brian D. Kennedy. This one is definitely top of my TBR. It's about two uh, guys, one who wants to be country music's biggest gay superstar, but he's 17 and living in Illinois. And then the other one is a guy who hates country music. They come together because one of them is a grandson of a disgraced singer. And then the other one goes to live with his aunt and works at an amusement park that's run by one of his idols who, you know, is kind of like Dolly Parton-esque. Then we have Sinister Graves, a cash black bear mystery. This is by Marcy R. Rendon who we talked about a couple episodes ago when we got to go to a fabulous dinner by Soho Press and meet her. At that same event, we also met Ramona Emerson, and her book Shudder is included in this giveaway. So these are four fantastic books. We can't wait for you to read. We hope you enjoy them. This episode airs on the 19th, so why don't we do our giveaway on Monday the 25th? That sounds good. And so to get entered to win, all you have to do is be a newsletter subscriber to the Book Cougars newsletter. We send out one newsletter a month. It's usually just kind of like what we've been up to, what's coming up. We don't do spam. We'd love for you to be a subscriber. And you can do that on the website, which we will put a link in the show notes. And then we're going to do a separate giveaway for The Seed Keeper, which is our third quarter read-along. This book by Diane Wilson is about a Dakota family and spreads over several generations. As is true with most of our read-alongs, we don't know a lot about it, and we like to keep it that way. If you look online, it says it's a haunting novel spanning several generations. follows a Dakota family's struggle to preserve their way of life and their sacrifices to protect what matters most. It's great. You know, thank you for saying that we don't look up a lot about what a book is about, Because I know we've had questions about that, like, what's the book about? We want, you know, we don't know what it's about. And we choose books that are on our radar or that, you know, if we're browsing around and we see it or it's recommended, we're both the type of people who don't like to know a lot about a book before we dive into it. So we don't know. You'll have to do your own research to see if it's a book you might be interested in reading. 
And if it is, we'd love to have you join us. Right. And if you're a newsletter subscriber, you're going to be automatically entered to win. And we'll do that drawing the same day, July 25th. Sounds good. Lots of giveaways. (laughs) Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm into one of my big books for the summer. This is the one that I'm doing as a buddy read with folks on Goodreads. It's The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. It's fantastic. I'm in page 180 or so. I've read the first two sections, and it's blowing my mind a bit. You know, you think you know a lot about a lot of things, but then you read a book and you realize, I don't. That was very generic, what I just said, but you know what I mean. Yeah, it applies to a lot of different things. Yeah. You know, one of the things I didn't realize the extent, like after the Civil War during Reconstruction, Black citizens, you know, they had their rights finally. They were considered citizens. They had the right to marry, to education, to vote in the case of men. So things were looking really good. And within a few decades, all of that was taken away again. And Jim Crow was established in the South. Wilkerson doesn't go into a ton of historical detail, which is really great because it's all balanced with stories of three people's experience of growing up in the South and deciding to leave the South to head North or West. It's a really good combination of some of these factual things with the lived experience. There's a ton of violence. I didn't realize the extent of the murders and whippings that were still happening by whites on African-Americans. And that's horrifying The case that established Jim Crow, you know, the separate but equal Plessy versus Ferguson, it was an 1894 Supreme Court case that was voted eight to one Mm. to allow separate but equal thinking. It's really shocking. And it's also shocking to think that this is something that's going on now in America again, where citizens who were given equal rights, those rights are being chipped away again, as well as LGBTQ rights the rights for women to have their own medical care and control of their bodies. All of these things are under a threat again. So in some ways, it's a comfort to read something and think we've been through something similar and we can fight this and hopefully it won't take 70 years, but you never know. Anyway, it's a great read so far. It sounds very heavy and it is very heavy, but at the same time, it's so readable. She's a really wonderful writer. And is it because of the storytelling aspect, you think? Like it gives it relevance for what she's saying? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you just really see like, who would stay? One of the characters' brother decides to stay. And he kind of feels like if you leave, you're running away and you're letting them win mm. kind of situation. So I do understand that mentality in some ways. But there was just so much coercion to make people stay in the South who were trying to get away, which was a shocking thing to learn about. Yeah, it's also not easy to just relocate. No, it's not. At this point, it's all leading up to people really leaving. Mm -hmm. And then part three is when the migration starts. And the dates for this are roughly 1915 to the 1970s. So more to come on that. Yeah, yeah. I'd really like to join you, but I just, (laughs) I'm overwhelmed with reading. Yeah. So Um, uh, again, that's The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. I'm reading, as always, Julia, Food, Friendship, and the Making of a Masterpiece, edited by Joan Reardon. This is 
the letters between Julia Child and Avis Devoto. I'd been searching for this book. And then thank you, Aunt Ellen, for dropping a copy in the mail that she found in San Francisco at the library there for me. I'm reading it really slowly and just enjoying the experience of it. These two met because Julia Child wrote a letter to Avis's husband, who wrote an article about kitchen knives in the US and how it's impossible to sharpen them. And Julia was in France. So she wrote this letter to him about knives in France and how wonderful they are. And I think she even sent him one. (laughs) And he was so busy that Avis, his wife wrote her back. And their friendship was born. And they continue to write to each other. It really gives you a place in time. It's so fascinating. And also perspective into the time period in which Julia was writing her cookbook. And Avis became one of the editors and was instrumental in Julia finding a publisher for the book. Really enjoying it. But again, taking it slow and just reading, you know, like 10 pages a day. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's called As Always, Julia, edited by Joan Reardon. I'm so glad you got that. Obviously, you think of the movie Julia, and that relationship is portrayed a bit, which is heartwarming. And, you know, a great movie for middle-aged women doing something later in life, because I think she's in her 40s or 50s when mm-hmm. she makes the opportunity. Yes, there you go. Well, and I became very interested in this relationship because of the new Julia Child series. And I just love it. Avis is this, this really no nonsense woman. And I was like, I need to learn more about this relationship. Oh, very cool. I need yeah. to give that one a watch the new one. Yes. Yeah. I'm also reading East of Eden by John Steinbeck, which is the selection for this month's vintage book club that meets here in connecticut if anyone is in the area and wants to join us it is july 21st at 1 p.m we meet shoot us an email bookcookers at gmail if you're interested in joining us all are welcome i'm loving it i was a bit intimidated by this novel and then when you had told me it was one of your favorites of all times i was like pressure And uh, the first couple pages, I was just like, oh, what did I get myself into? Because it's a big book. It's literally like hashtag big book summer. Hello, Sue. (laughs) And your reading challenge. I got into it, though, within the first dozen pages or so, and it just swept me away. And I'm in love with it. It is such a different story. The plot is, it's not even a plot. It doesn't feel like a plot. Like you just feel like you're being carried along on this story of these very interesting people's lives. Yes. I know I'm planning (laughs) to join Chris, even though it's a week away. It would be a reread for me, obviously, as Chris said, it's probably in my top 10 of all time. So I think I'm going to try to listen to the audio. I got a copy. It's 25 hours. Oh, my. Yeah. But I just thought that might be a different way to experience it. I'll probably end up doing both. If you're looking for me over the next week, you'll know where to find me. (laughs) I'll be with you. John. <laughs> you know, I'm really, I'm surprised uh, abortion has come up several times. And that was something I didn't expect. And I thought, wow, how relevant to today's situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So again, that's East of Eden by John Steinbeck. I'm reading The Poet's House by Jean Thompson, who's very prolific. I had never read her. This was one where a publisher sent us a copy and I just happened to pick it up like you. I like to read my e-reader at night because it provides the light and it helps your significant sleep undisturbed. 
And I was drawn in right away. It's about Carla, who's a young woman working as a landscaper. She's a little bit lost. She has a learning disability, so college didn't work out for her. So she's doing something with her hands, but she aspires to do other things. And she ends up working at a woman's house who's a poet. Mm. And then a few days later, after she's had some interactions with this woman, she sees a poster for a reading And when the woman starts reading her poetry, it just really draws Carla in. And she realizes that listening to it auditorily was really meaningful to her, even if she has trouble with the written word. That's as far as I am. I know the rest of the story is about Carla getting really drawn into this poet and artistic world. But Jean Thompson's ability to just draw me into the story so quickly, I thought, ooh, I'm I'm not going to put this one down, that's for sure. And I'm trying something new that our buddy Russell of Ink and Paper Blog has been talking about where I'm doing multiple reads at a time of fiction, which I don't usually do. Okay. And his justification for it is, well, we watch multiple TV shows and series and we can keep the storylines in our head. So why don't we do that with reading? Usually it doesn't work in my head, but I'm trying it. I'm giving it a go with Mm -hmm. Russell's inspiration. So The Poet's House is one that I've been reading whilst reading some of these other books I'm going to talk about. Okay. You know, I could do that if it's a very different genre, Mm -hmm. I think. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when it comes to novel, I just want to read them and get them done. Get it in the bag. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, you know, it's a good, compelling story. And I, I don't want to put it down is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think the thing is, are you consuming them at different times for different reasons? So that's like the e-reader thing. If you have one going on an e-reader and you have one as an audiobook, you know, you are consuming different stories. Whereas I used to be really vigilant about trying, even if I was going to read on those different platforms, I was going to do it all of the same book. Right. So I'm trying and seeing if it works or if my brain explodes. Very cool. Well, (laughs) we'll see. Yes. More to come on next episode. The Poet's House by Jean Thompson. Right. Speaking of reading digitally, the digital book I currently have going is A Writer's Diary, Virginia Woolf. It was a posthumous book. She died in 1941. This came out in 1953. It was collected and edited by her husband, Leonard. So these are diary entries that he pulled out that deal specifically with her own writing and reading and some other authors and things like that. It was on my e-reader. I don't know how and when it got there. And all of a sudden, I must have hit a button because all of a sudden it showed up on my Goodreads <laughs> is currently reading. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let me check it out. Really weird, yeah. right? I'm enjoying it very much. And I wanted to share two quotes. One is, this is early on in her journaling. And she says, these 10 minutes are stolen from Mall Flanders, which I failed to finish yesterday in accordance with my timesheet. So I was like, oh, my God, Virginia Woolf kept a time schedule, wow. scheduling out her reading. That was really cool. Yeah. I enjoyed that. I don't know much about her at all. So this is kind of fun. And then this other quote, it's about Catherine Mansfield. She read one of her stories. It's called Bliss. I haven't read the story, but apparently the premise is along the lines of ignorance is bliss. And they became really good friends. And they really respected one another's writings. But apparently there was a little competition sometimes. And so this is what Virginia Woolf wrote about Catherine Mansfield after reading Bliss. I shall have to accept the fact, I'm afraid, that her mind is a very thin soil 
laid an inch or two deep upon very barren rock. <laughs> oh, my gracious. That is like, like throwing some serious shade. Right? I was like, wow. I had to like read that sentence a couple times. It was so good. <laughs> Isn't that kind of an example of like, do you want someone digging into your journals? Right? Wow. I know. It could be kind of dicey. I don't yeah. know like the background on this, if he had permission to do this or if it's just a spouse's slash executor's right wow. to do these things. So again, that's A Writer's Diary by Virginia Woolf. And that's what I'm reading at bedtime. Nice. The other book I'm reading is one that I read about in the New York Times book review. And then also our buddy Ryan had posted about how much he enjoyed it. And he and I often have the same taste in books. And it's called Ola Poppy, How to Come Out in a Walmart Parking Lot and Other Life Lessons by John Paul Bramer. I'm pretty sure he goes by JP. And um, he was on the hookup site Grinder, and people were referring to him like, hey, Pappy, hey, Pappy, which is kind of racist. <laughs> and that's the best way to say it, I think, because he is of Latin descent. So he thought about it as flattering at first, and then he started to wonder about what it meant, which led to him eventually writing an advice column in the Grinder magazine. And he's referred to as the Cheryl Strayed for queer folk, which I love that. And then he has a Substack newsletter. newsletter, which is getting very common with authors. And all of this has led to this memoir, which I've only read the very intro to, but I'm really looking forward to it. I loved Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things. I'm sure this is going to have some different themes, but looking forward to it again, it's called Ola Poppy, How to Come Out in a Walmart Parking Lot and Other Life Lessons by John Paul Bramer. Well, it has a fun cover. It has yeah. a great cover. Yeah. Very eye-catching. Nice. So Emily, what have you just read? I finished The Buddha in the Attic by Julie Atsuka. This is one of the books I picked up on our Dash Around Salt Lake City bookstores. I had read her book, The Swimmers, earlier this year, loved it. And so many people have talked about this. It won a Penn Faulkner Award. It published in 2011. It's only 129 pages, very spare. I don't know if you would refer to that as a novella. But like The Swimmers, it's told from the we perspective. And it covers the time period of 1907 to 1924, when picture brides were brought over from Japan as it's kind of a version of a mail order bride, right? right. Um, but they were referred to as picture brides because they had received pictures back and forth of these husbands to be. And then they arrived to San Francisco and were like, who are these people that are now meeting us on the docks? And the beginning of the book is about their travels in the ship. And then the titles of the chapters are things like babies, first night where they meet their husbands traitors. It's very dark and very brutal. The lives that these women led were not what they had expected. It was really hard to read, but her writing is amazing. And some of the women found love in other places, but many of them lived very unfulfilled, unhappy lives. Then it also goes to the time period where the Japanese internment camps were becoming prolific and people just started to disappear. And what was really surprising to me was with these forced removals, people that knew 
them in their neighborhood, they just disappeared. They had no idea that they were being taken. And that seemed almost impossible to me. But it made me realize how things can change quickly and we can be unaware, right? Right. Because it's unimaginable, really, is the truth of it. Yeah. So loved her writing, very difficult subject matter. And the way that she treats it as a we, there are individual characters, but you're getting a sense of the whole group, you Mm. know? Yeah. Wow, it sounds like a good thing it's a short book, because that's one of the criticisms I've heard of Yanagahari's books. It was just so long and so torturous. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people love that book. I haven't read it, so Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about the length of a book that's torturous to read. And Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I mean, her writing is spare, so it's also amazing how torturous a spare book can be, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, length sometimes... As is often the case, doesn't matter. Right. Look at the short story, right? Right. You can pack a punch. Yes. Yeah. So again, this is called The Buddha in the Attic by Julie Otsuka. Well, I did finish Death by Dumpling by Vivian Chen. That's how to pronounce her name. I know I had a question about that uh, last time. It's C-H-I-E-N, Chen. I really enjoyed it. It's a cozy mystery, part of the Noodle Shop mystery series. It's the first in that series. And... I just enjoyed it. Cozies are known to be comforting in some way because there's not gruesome violence or sex or murder torture on the page. Like none of that happens. The main character is one I could handle reading more books with. Sometimes my issue with cozies is I get a little saturated with the cuteness that can be happening. Not always, but sometimes. So starting a new cozy mystery can be, okay, we'll see. But I thought the mystery itself was really well done in how she uses the past. One of the things Louise Penny's chief inspector Gamache has said is that quite often a murder is decades in the making. Mm. So I hope that's not a spoiler for anyone who wants to read this series. But it's the Noodle Shop series. It's set in her parents' Chinese restaurant, Holy Noodles, I believe. It's <laughs> a great name. Well, Holy noodles. Um, And so she's somebody who impulsively quit her job and then had a hard time finding a new job and ended up working to pay the bills at her parents' Chinese restaurant, which was not her dream, even though it may have been their dream. She does have a roommate who becomes her sidekick. And there are two love interests. I don't want to say too much more. I know I kind of set it up on the last episode about that it's the landlord who dies And she's the suspect because she delivered the takeout order. She's also trying to clear the cook's name because they're old friends. So who did it and why is, of course, the burning issue. It was good. good. It was enjoyable. (laughs) I wrote a blog post about it, and I said, every time her mom made her noodles, I got jealous. (laughs) I mean, you know, that's one of the good things about, I know it's tough to be a kid growing up in a family restaurant, But that would be one of the perks, for Mm -hmm. sure. So again, that's Death by Dumpling by Vivian Chen, the first in the Noodle House mystery series. We'll put a link in the show notes to Chris's blog post. It was great. I loved it. Thank you. (laughs) I finished Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. This book is just newly out. Some people might recognize her name. She wrote The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, amongst other books. And this is about Sam and Sadie who meet in a hospital when they're young and Sadie's sister is there for cancer treatments. 
And Sam is there because he's been in a car accident that destroyed his foot. And he's had multiple surgeries and just ends up being in the hospital for a really long time. And they meet and befriend each other. They fall out of friendship with each other. I won't tell you why, but end up running into each other on the streets of Boston because they're both there at college. One of them is at MIT now and one of them is at Harvard. And they're both gamers. And that's one of the things they had bonded over when they were younger. I'm not a gamer at all. So that part of the book was a little bit lost on me, but it is a huge part of the book. But I still stuck with it. And they end up becoming game creators, make a business together and have a friendship and a love of sorts. They definitely have a love and live a long span of life together. The book covers 30 years. They go from coast to coast because they originally met in California, then had a whole amount of time where they were in college and developed their business in the East Coast and then moved back to California. So it's very of place in that way. And it does go back and forth in time, the story. It's long. It's 416 pages. There are some people who say it's a little too long. I did find it started to feel long. And so what I did was tapped into the audio, which through Libro.fm, reminder that we have an affiliation with Libro.fm. You can read about that in the show notes and on our website. The narrator was great and it re-jump started my pleasure of reading the book, you know? Yeah. But it's about love and business and being a female in the business world, especially in the gaming world, and also about disability, because Sam does suffer from his foot's never quite the same. And a lot of family, everybody has different family dynamics that play a part in the story. She's a smart writer. She's one of those people like you have to put the book down and look up a lot of words on every page. <laughs> Gabrielle Zevin graduated from Harvard, so she knows her vocabulary. <laughs> but I did enjoy it ultimately, but I'm not sure I would have gotten through it had I not started to listen to it. A little bit. Interesting. Yeah. So now, do you think if you were a gaming person, do you think you would have gotten bogged down? Or is that not part of what maybe bogged you down? That I would not have gotten bogged down? You mean, do you think I would have enjoyed it a little bit more? Right. I think maybe so. Like, I'm not overly fascinated by games, and I'm not fascinated by how people create them and all of that. It's been compared a little bit to The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, written by Michael Chabon, which is all about the comic book world. And I I don't read comic books either, you know, and I loved that book. So I don't think it was just about that. I think there was a lot of that detail in it. Okay. You know, and that just didn't wow me. Mm-hmm. Maybe part of it, too, is she refers to a lot of real games, you yeah. know. So it's that thing where someone drops references and you're like, oh, that was lost on me. Right. But I think because she's such a great writer, and I did like the characters that I stuck with it. Again, it's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And another one, big book summer read in the bag. All right. Woo-hoo. <laughs> All right. Well, I have to thank Aunt Ellen, who sent me a book that she got in a little free library that I think is just fantastic. It's one of those books where you it moves. So like you have a picture and then you pull down the little tab on the bottom and a new picture appears. That's relevant to the story. There are not that many stories in here. There's four different little stories. So on the left hand page is like a little poem 
And then on the right-hand side is that image uh, that you can manipulate. So this book, I was fascinated. The title is called Surprise, Surprise, a reproduction of an antique book of magical moving pictures by Lothar Megendorfer. All right, I turned the book over, and the book was actually purchased in Florida. It has this tag from a museum. So I looked up the book, and they have this on the back too, I should say. It's a reproduction from a book called Nora for Brave Kinder, and it was published in 1899, originally in Germany. This reproduction was from 1981, I believe, or two, by Viking Press. It was printed in Columbia, South America. It was purchased at this Florida museum, Whitehall, Henry M. Flagler Museum in Palm Beach, Florida, Aunt Ellen found it in a little free library in California and sent it to me in Connecticut. So I feel like this little book has had quite the journey. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, isn't that cool? So uh, thank you so much, Ellen. I love it. Emily and I have talked about maybe doing a little video and putting it on Instagram or something like that so people could see what we're talking about if you haven't seen one of these before. Yeah, my kids loved books like that. And eventually, especially depending on the age in which they received the books, they wouldn't always continue working. So I think it's amazing that that book has done so much traveling and the pictures all still work. They still all work. It's really cool. And they're very nice, vivid pictures, drawings. We'll do something, some sort of video to share that one. It's definitely a sharer. The next book I finished is for my book club, which is next week. And it's called Freshwater for Flowers by Valerie Perrin. This is translated from the French by Hildegard Seal and narrated by Sarah Young. Europa published it in the States in 2020. It was originally published in 2018 in France, and it was a number one seller. And I can see why. Oh, my gosh, this book. Oh, it's about Violette Toussaint, who's a caretaker at a cemetery. She grew up in foster care. She's looking for family. She finds Philip Toussaint, who's kind of a motorcycle riding bad boy who sees her at a bar when she's a bartender and picks her up and doesn't let her go. Mm-hmm. The novel weaves back and forth in time. It mostly takes place at a cemetery which may sound haunting, but it is not haunting at all. It's a vibrant cemetery and chapters deal with people who are coming and going and visiting people who are interred there or people who work there. It's a sexy book. A third of the way through, I was like, oh, it's sexy in a Victorian way. And then that changes and it's just sexy. (laughs) But there's people having affairs with each other and mysteries that come out after people die, which is one of the fascinations about it taking place at a cemetery. Mm. It's like one of the characters steps in because his mother, who's now been cremated and is in a vase, was supposed to be buried next to someone who's not her husband, for example. So then, you know, the story would go back and forth forth in time to explain how that came to be very cool there's also a whole thread of foreboding where you just know something dark is brewing and it turns out there's a little mystery i don't think it's being billed as a mystery at all but i think there's a mystery trying to be solved throughout the pages of the book as well Hmm. this book was so good i could not put it down i will say though i did have trouble picking it up 
and starting it. So when I was away, I tried it and it did not work for me. And I was worried. And then I started the audio and that really made it click. I think because of some of the French pronunciation, which just helped me get settled in the story. And then I started to read it. And then I went back and forth because I would go to take a walk and was like, oh, I can't, I've got to keep listening. So (laughs) I highly recommend it. It's called Freshwater for Flowers. Beautifully written. It is long. It it too is over 400 pages. Wow. But I loved it. Wow. I've heard so many people praising this book. Yeah. And I didn't know it was in a cemetery, which is a big plus for me because I love cemeteries. I should say it's also obviously a lot about grief and how to handle grief. Mm. Yeah, beautiful, mm, beautiful right. book. I have to put that one on my TBR. Well, the next book, I didn't read it, but one of our listeners did. Karen, who is on Instagram and on Twitter, too, at Barker for Books, wrote a brief review about Helltown by Casey Sherman. And it is a true crime book, which I don't read a lot of true crime, but I'm kind of attracted to them, but they creep me out too much. Um, this book just released July 12th, and I thought I'd read her review. What do two award-winning novelists, Kurt Vonnegut and Norman Mailer, and a depraved serial killer have in common? Perhaps more than you might think. In Helltown, Casey Sherman uses Tony Costa's serial murders in the late 1960s Cape Cod area as a centerpiece to provide glimpses of life during that tumultuous era. True crime fans won't want to miss this one. I could not stop turning the pages. One caveat. Sherman does tell the story using techniques borrowed from fiction. Most of the important aspects are based on factual details. However, at least one aspect of Helltown is based purely on Sherman's imaginative conjecture, which he acknowledges in his endnotes. This did not bother me because Sherman includes extensive documentation of the factual events, but purists will want to be forewarned. And she says it's for fans of Eric Larson's The Devil in the White City, which I definitely love that one. Yeah, and so she uh, thanks NetGalley and Sourcebooks for the electronic arc that she received. So thank you, Karen, for that review. I know we have listeners who like true crime, and since we don't read it ourselves, really, I mean, I think we have maybe on occasion, I thought listeners should know about this book since you praised it so highly. Yeah, that's on my radar. It makes me a little nervous since it takes place in Cape Cod. I'm like, oh, would I just be looking for a serial killer lurking in the beach grass? I know, <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I know, we're, we're planning on going probably in like November, and I was just like, oh. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, again, that's Helltown by Casey Sherman, available now. And thanks, Karen. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Chris, did you have any Biblio adventures? Well, I did. Back in Illinois, I hit a couple bookstores I didn't have a lot of out and about time, but the ones that I did have, um, I really enjoyed. I was able to meet our friend Colleen, who listeners know has been on our show several times with uh, biblio recaps of her own. We met at a bookstore called Prairie Path Books in Wheaton, Illinois, which is where we worked together once upon a time in Wheaton, not at that bookstore, at a different bookstore. It was our first visit for both of us there at Prairie Path. It's kind of billed as a bookstore slash gift store. And that always makes me a tad bit leery because sometimes the gifts outweigh the books. And when you first walk in, Colleen said, when I first walked in, I thought, oh, this is going to be more gifts it looked like, but it totally wasn't. We were both so pleasantly surprised at the amount of books and then how well curated they were. Just a really great, interesting selection. And they had one whole section 
that were books that their customers had recommended. Oh, what a cool idea. Wasn't it a cool idea? And I just thought, what a great way to build community, to have something like that. And then they also had a display of historical fiction that were not World War II <laughs> in focus, which I thought was great, too. I mean, nothing wrong with World War II fiction. It's just that it's so predominating, that subgenre right now, that it can be kind of a challenge to find them. So that was cool, too. Yeah. I bought a couple things. I bought you a book. Ooh. I'm handing it to Emily. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Hot, Hot Chicken, A Nashville Story by Rachel Louise Martin. I've never heard of this. Yeah, so it's about hot chicken, which is a dish that started in Nashville. And so it looks like she looks at the communities that it started from and the racial issues of the area and then how the dish has really expanded kind of worldwide at this point. Oh, my gosh. I cannot wait. That is so cool. I mean, to uh, to focus a book on one item. What, right? One yeah. dish. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. And I thought Thank of you, you when I saw it. And then so after our big browse there, we went to a restaurant nearby where Colleen introduced me to Italian beef egg rolls. Oh, yum. Really? My first thought was, ew. I don't really see anything oh. in an egg roll to me. Really? Sounds okay. delicious. <laughs> uh, so this is just fabulous. You know, Italian beef, for those of you who don't know, it's really thinly sliced beef that's marinated and a beautiful marinade. And you usually eat it on like French bread or something. So this had that kind of Italian beef with cheese and jardinier mm. done up in an egg roll. It was delicious. Yeah, that yeah. sounds really yummy. Good. Sounds like the perfect day. It was. I mean, we talked for the longest time, and I could have kept talking a lot more. She had dinner plans to get to, and I had to get back to help my mom. It was so great to see her, though. Nice. I was also able to meet another friend of ours at a different bookstore, Suzanne, who's a booktopian. I know some of our listeners know her from Booktopia. We met up at Anderson's bookstores in Naperville, which is a place where we usually do meet when I'm in town. So it was great to see her again and have her browse there. And I'm mentioning the food again because of Emily and how much she loves food. But this was also really great food. We went to a place called Seoul Taco. Seoul as in Korea. S-E-O-U-L. So Seoul Taco. So it's another mashup of food cultures. And I had a burrito. Inside of the burrito is kimchi fried rice, lettuce, cheese, carrots, green onions, sour cream, Seoul sauces. And then I added bulgogi steak. Oh, my God. It was delicious. Yeah. Yeah, bulgogi. Bulgogi. Yeah, I think that's what you So delicious. Oh my God, you're making me so hungry, Chris. Man, and that place (laughs) delivers, you know? Like if I live there. Oh, forget it. I mean, that's one of the great things about the Chicago area in general. So much great food. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of cities say that, but I kind of feel like, well, you know, I'm totally biased. Yeah. Yeah, great food. Great conversations with great book friends. Again, we sat there talking for the longest time, could have talked all night. Now, that restaurant wasn't part of the bookstore, though, right? No, that was after. We just, after a browse, we kind of walked around a little bit and decided on that one because it sounded interesting. I always have had this impression of Anderson's being a big store. Is that true? Yeah, Anderson's is a pretty big store, their Naperville location. You know, it's not as big as like North Shire. It's bigger than like Breakwater Books here in Guilford, Connecticut. It's it's pretty sizable. And they purchased the store next door. And that's where they started having events. Oh, nice. I'm not sure if they still do that. I don't know how that changed during the pandemic. 
But back before I moved to Connecticut, when they had author events, you'd go to the store next door where they also had a lot of gifts, you know, bookish type gifts. So it was a nice place for the store to keep doing its business and for people to attend an event. Right. And they have a couple locations, or they used to have a couple locations in the Chicagoland area. Hmm. Well, I also got the chance to go to my favorite used bookstore in the Chicago suburbs called the Frugal Muse. And I always find treasures there. It never fails. They just have such great curation, wonderful subsections, and the books are usually in pretty good shape. So I did find a Carson McCullers, not exactly vintage, although I'm not sure what the definition of vintage actually is, because I found a copy of The Ballad of the Sad Cafe and Other Stories by Carson McCullers. And this book was printed, drumroll, 1991. And this is the movie edition that I found of the book. The copyright is 1936. Oh, wow. Yeah. So a movie was made, though. It was a Merchant and Ivory motion picture. I was so surprised because I thought I knew all of their movies. And this one starred Vanessa Redgrave and Keith Carradine. Oh, wow. Right? And so they're on the cover. When I first picked it up, I thought, is that two guys? I was like, that is not a guy. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's Vanessa Redgrave. Hmm. In yeah. overalls and yeah. like a, a, a cap. Gray, kind yeah. Of. yeah, yeah. Super happy to find that. And then I just have to share one other book that I found there. I mean, okay, confession time. I had to borrow a suitcase from my mom. <laughs> Because I bought so many books. Been there, done that. Yeah. And I didn't plan on it, but I did, you know. I I just, you know, know, I'm not going to call it a sickness because it's a joy. No, yeah. But I found this copy of Editor to Author, The Letters of Maxwell E. Perkins. Hmm. Yeah, it's edited by John Wall Wheelock. And Max Perkins was the subject of one of my favorite biographies. And it was Max Perkins, Editor of Genius, I found this book, and I don't seek out Max Perkins stuff. (laughs) They seem to find me when the time is right. And so this book has letters by him to a whole host of authors and other people that he dealt with, including F. Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway. I'm looking forward to dipping into this here and there. It is Editor to Author, The Letters of Maxwell E. Perkins by John Hall Wheelock, and again, you know, he was the editor of Fitzgerald and Hemingway, yeah. other writers of that time period. Awesome. Well, I had an at-home couch biblio adventure with our buddy John Valeri's central booking YouTube channel reminder that he's up to episode 103. If you haven't been watching central booking, there's a lot to watch there. We'll put a link in the show notes. I watched episode 101 with Joey Hartstone, the author of The Local, which I waxed poetic about on the last episode. John just asked great questions. It was a really good interview. I highly recommend it amongst his other interviews as well. Reminder that I loved that book, which is out now, The Local by Joey Hartstone. Now, Emily... What do you have upcoming, jaunt-wise? I am excited tonight to go see in person Gabrielle Zevin, the author of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, at RJ Julia's right here in Madison down the street. I have competing events, though, but one of them is virtual, which I'm hoping they're going to (laughs) record. I might try to watch like the first half of an hour of it. But it's one of those buzz book 
events with editors talking to authors. And this is a romance author panel with Kate Claiborne, Jasmine Guillory, Kennedy Ryan, Amber D. Samuel, and Kylie Scott. So I'm hoping to catch both of them tonight. We'll see how that goes. What about you? I plan on sitting on my butt or laying on my back and doing nothing but reading for a while. Right on. I need to piggyback on that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, We both have some deadlines, which leads to our upcoming reads, right? Right, exactly. What is on your list for upcoming reads? John Steinbeck's East of Eden, a reread new listen for me and then atomic anna by rachel barenbaum we are going to be interviewing her next week for episode 161 which i'm really excited about yeah me too what about you on my list is john steinbeck's journal of a novel the east of eden letters so apparently when john sat down to write each day he wrote a letter to his editor about what his intentions were i don't know the details because I kind of dipped into the book that one day, and the first sentence I read was a spoiler. Right. I was like, "Sir, <laughs> um, so it's I know. not funny." I'm I sorry. No, no I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I look forward to reading this after I read the novel. I didn't write down the person's name, but somebody I was chatting with on Instagram said, "Yeah, if you haven't read the novel, don't read Journal of a Novel. Read the novel first, and then read this." Because she said it is totally full of spoilers. Yeah, obviously, because he's talking about what his plans are in the writing. Right, right. And how I, he thinks things are going and stuff. I love the idea of that, though. It's like, a um, what do you call that when you set, not intentions, but it's like holding yourself accountable. I'm going to sit down and write the editor and say, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. This is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I would think a lot of authors maybe do that in their head, but to involve your editor in it, Maybe that was more a time and a place where editors did participate more. Maybe. I mean, I know they were friends, too. I think that might have had something to do with it. But I know, like in the case of Maxwell Perkins, to bring him up again, the way he worked with Thomas Wolfe, like he had written this huge trunk full of papers, and then Maxwell judged it all together. Right. So I think editors maybe were a lot more hands-on, or I don't know. I'm sorry, editors. I'm sure there's some editor listening right now pulling her hair out because she's like, oh, my God. What are you saying? We don't get involved. <laughs> there are books only because of us. Yeah. I know. Exactly. Yeah. It's quite yeah. true. Yeah. I guess I'm just saying like maybe editors, maybe editors had fewer authors that they had to work with. So they could have more time with each one or something. Well, there wasn't emails and all that. I mean, information was just handled differently. Yeah. Accountability partner. That's the new agey term I was thinking of that mm-hmm. maybe Steinbeck was using his editor in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. don't know. I love accountability Me partners. Too. I mean, it's such an important concept, especially when you're working on something long term. And creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, since I had this unplanned trip to Illinois, which I'm glad I was able to do, but I missed out on some of the LGBTQ book stuff that I wanted to talk about and get into. I just kind of packed my bags and ran. But there are four books that I really want to read that the publisher was nice enough to send me copies of. A Little Bit Country by Brian D. Kennedy, and then Milo and Marcos at the End of the World by Kevin Christopher Snipes. These are the two that I mentioned. We're also doing a giveaway of these two books. So thanks to Harper Teen. And then there are two more. So this one is Out of the Blue by Jason June. And this, it's a book about a guy, and these are all LGBTQ books. Um, He's a lifeguard and I guess had a bad breakup. 
and there's a merman who has to come to do his year of service, <laughs> I guess they have to do, as a mer person to help out a human being. And uh, I like the dedication that Jason wrote. He said, to mom and dad and mom for always letting me pretend to be a mermaid. So this is like a retelling of The Little Mermaid with two men, two young guys, I should say. I've never seen The Little Mermaid. Oh, yeah. I loved it. It was when Rachel... I think that was her first movie we ever took her to, maybe, because her birthday's in June. It was always when the new Disney movie came out. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. one of the first movies I remember seeing was a Disney movie, is the Aristocats. Mm, yeah, love that classic. one. Yeah. yeah. And then the last book is Only on the Weekends by Dean Atta, A-T-T-A. And this book is a book in verse, and I'm showing Emily, so... Wow. Some of the verse is just like one letter or one word per line. Others is a little bit more formal looking. It is a kind of a large book. It's over 500 pages, all in verse. And it's a story about a young guy whose his dad is a filmmaker. And they go to Scotland. He's going with his dad on this work thing. And there's love interest happening. And the boy from back home is a little bit non-communicative, so there's some tension between everything. I look forward to these. I'm apparently like where the boys are this summer <laughs> with these four <laughs> books, but I really look forward to reading them. And I think I'm going to start with a little bit country because of the Dolly connection. And I love country music. I mean, I used to be a big country fan. It'll be interesting to see what they drop, you know, like what the references are that you get. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> So a reminder to people out now, a book that we talked about in the past, Brother Alive by Zane Khalid. This came out on July 12th. It is available now. And coming up, we have a great interview with editors. We didn't check back in the archives, but we're pretty sure we've never interviewed editors of an anthology before. Right. I know we've interviewed an editor before, at least one. But yeah, this is anthology editors. Right. So really different territory for us in thinking about how editors do something like that. Yeah. So this is a book called Other Terrors, an inclusive anthology edited by Vince Laguno and Rena Mason. It was just a really fun conversation. And this is about horror short stories I'm not a horror reader, y'all. You know that if I had my preference, I'd be reading about cupcakes and the beach. (laughs) (laughs) And I was drawn into this right away. I mean, it was scary. I'm not going to lie. And I was home alone and made sure my windows were locked. But it was really good. Yes. And a great way to be introduced to some authors that I've always wanted to read, but been a little afraid to read. Some authors, certainly, we've talked about on the podcast, like Alma Katsu and Stephen Graham Jones. Jennifer McMahon. S.A. Cosby. Yeah, a lot of really well-known up-and-coming writers. And as Vince said, a couple people, this is their first time in a big project like this, so their first publication. Yeah, which is really exciting. Yes. So enjoy listening to our interview, and the book drops on the day this podcast airs. July 19th. So it's out there. We totally recommend it. Happy Happy reading. reading. We're horrified. I mean, happy to be here today with Vince Lagano and Rena Mason, two Bram Stoker award-winning writers who have collaborated to put together a fabulous new anthology called Other Terrors, an inclusive anthology. 
Vince won the Bram Stoker Award for Unspeakable Horror from the Shadows of the Closet, an anthology of queer horror fiction, which he co-edited with Chad Helder. His debut novel, The Literary Six, a tribute to the slasher films of the 80s, won an independent publisher award for horror and was named a finalist in Forward Magazine's Book of the Year Awards in the gay lesbian fiction category. In 2007, Vince launched Dark Scribe Magazine, where he served as editor-in-chief since the virtual magazine's inception. Vince is a member and former secretary of the Horror Writers Association and the National Book Critics Circle. Rena Mason is an American dark speculative fiction author of Thai Chinese descent and the Bram Stoker Award-winning author of The Evolutionist and The Devil's Throat. In 2014, Rena was a quarter-finalist for Stage 32's The Bloodless Search for New Blood Screenwriting Contest. An avid scuba diver, Rena has traveled the world and enjoys incorporating her real-life experiences into her stories. She's a member of a variety of writers' organizations, including the Horror Writers Association, the Mystery Writers of America, International Thriller Writers, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association, the Public Safety Writers Association, and the International Screenwriters Association. Both Vince and Rena are dialing in today from the great mitten-shaped state in the Midwest, Michigan. Welcome. Thanks for thank having you. us. Thanks for making us sound so accomplished. Wow. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> we know we're here today to talk about your fantastic new anthology, but we also really wanted to make it clear to our listeners that you're both writers of your own fiction. And um, so we hope we made that clear. And you both do sound incredibly accomplished. We're so grateful to have you here today. Speaking of incredibly accomplished, this anthology has, I believe it's 24 stories, a great list of authors. We wanted to start by asking you, the foreword really speaks to the idea of otherness and how it's been handled in horror. How did you reach out to these authors and how did you handle the idea of otherness when you were posing this anthology to them. Actually, the, um, the the concept of doing a diversity anthology was first conceptualized by Lisa Morton when she was president of the Horror Writers Association. She pitched the idea to the association's agent, Alex Shane, from Writers House, who loved the idea. Um, she stepped down as president. John Palisano stepped in, and the project continued to have legs. So they approached Rena and I and said, hey, we want to do this diversity anthology. We were on board immediately because we thought it was such a great idea, but we didn't want it to be an anthology where we took a checklist and we said, okay, we have a person of color. We have a gay man. We have a trans woman. We wanted to make it thematically more organic so that the, the otherness would be natural. Is that saying it right, Rena? Yeah. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Um like Vince said, this this project, I think we were approached, because I was going back and looking at the emails before we started here, it was in 2019, in uh, June of 2019 was when I was first approached. So it's it's been a, a nice, uh, long process. I think when we were starting out to reach out, we would uh, have these little meetings between us of, you know, who we thought would uh, we would like in the anthology. And some of us already knew people ourselves, you know, when we would approach them, like, for example, 
Jennifer McMahon, I knew I had the anthology in the back of my mind. So when I would go to a convention or like writer's retreat or something, and I knew Jennifer was going to be there, I, you know, kind of talked to her a little about it a little bit. And I said, you know, just maybe keep it in the back of your mind. You know, I'm hoping it, it somebody picks it up. So it's, it's a process that, you know, some people I spoke to early on that I thought I want, would write a good story. And then other people we kind of brought on later on. It was all teamwork. And, you know, and Lisa, we would go back to her for ideas of, you know, who she thought might be a good contributor. And then also the HWA, once we had our initial authors in the table of contents, HWA opens it up for submissions to its members. At first, they usually uh, have five. We're allowed to pick five stories from all the members. And, you know, now they're the membership is over 2000 members. So a lot of submissions would come in and Vince and I, we were able to get the table of contents of the people that we had initially written for contributions to keep their word counts down so we could get more members in. And I think we, we had doubled, right, Vince, the, the number. Yeah, we doubled it. And I think too, what was fun for us as editors was just, you know, we, we were, pitching people that we wanted to work with. You know, yeah. we're editors, but we're also, and writers, but we're also readers. So yeah. we just kind of wanted to really see what people we loved could come up with. And we wanted to kind of also stretch the, the boundaries of genre. We have S.A. Cosby, who's known as a crime writer in a horror anthology, and he knocks it out of the park. So this was a lot of fun for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm happy you mentioned the Cosby story because I was blown away by that one. You know, you talk about not having a checklist for other. I think within his own story, he really twists and turns a lot of things. You know, you think one thing's going to be happening and then maybe another thing and then another, and nothing what you thought was going to be happening happened. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that's always a surprise because even when you as an editor invite somebody, you never really know what you're going to get back. And I think Rita and I would sit with, you know, kind of like, clenched teeth and we'd be like, oh God, I hope it's good. I hope it's good. I hope it's good. <laughs> and it was like, it would blow our minds. So we yeah. were like, yes, they nailed it. Yes. So nothing worse than inviting somebody and then having to say, uh, you know, we're really not going to use it. Or, hey, could you go back and do these like massive revisions? So yeah. it was a little nerve wracking too, but they, they pulled through. We have an amazing group of contributors. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, just what's on the page here, we're, we're both really enjoying it. So that was a question we had in mind to ask you was, what is it like as writers yourselves to be editing other writers? But it sounds like perhaps you didn't do heavy editing for a lot of the stories, or is that getting too in the weeds of a question? <laughs> I, I mean, personally, I don't think we did a lot of heavy, heavy editing. There were some stories where we maybe asked for some clarification on this or that. But I think with the caliber of, of stories that came in and the caliber of contributors that we had asked to participate, the stories were just, were really, really good. There were only like one or two that I would say uh, emailed us periodically and would say, Hey, this is where I'm going with it. Is this what you're looking for? You know, and we could yeah. make a suggestion or two, but yeah, not heavily edited at all. Yeah, because that's such a, um, that was one thing we got from some of the authors was it's such a broad and vague uh, theme. 
And we knew though, Vince and I being others ourselves, that, uh, we knew what they would be turning in would be a different for everybody, their own maybe personal experience or how they perceive it. So the, I think the, the diversity of stories that came in were just as diverse as the authors that, that wrote the stories. So that was like really exciting for us too. I was just going to say it was interesting too. We were talking about the member submissions. Part of the, there was like a dual, duality to this process that we really enjoyed because Although there was this core group of, you know, name authors, because you need the names to sell it to a major publisher. So we were expecting, when we did the member submissions, they were all submitted through Submittable blindly. So we didn't know name, where they were from, anything about them. It was literally just the story speaking to us. And it was kind of fun afterwards, because even some of the stories we would reject or we thought, uh, we'll hold them for a second reading. Once we got in, you know, the names, we were like, wow, how neat is this? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really enjoyable process. Can yeah. we ask how many came through the Horror Writers Association and how many you were able to keep? Oh, oh. God, a couple hundred. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think we lost track around four or five hundred. Yeah, it's quite a few. As we said, we were um, contractually, we were told by HWA that there would be five member slots. But again, uh, Rena and I having having kind of been out there in the trenches as writers too, we just feel like if, if it's a, an organization only um, anthology call, we really wanted to maximize that and give people, you know, for, for a bunch of them, this is their first professional sale or big, big project. Mm-hmm. So we were able, we were able to double it. It was 10, I think. It went yeah. To 10. Wow. Yeah. But that was a, that was a big trim. You had to really weed through a lot. That's exciting. Yeah. And hard. It was, it was hard. <laughs> yeah. It was hard. There was a lot of good stories. And, you know, back to your question about the editing, a lot of them, they came in so clean. I mean, <laughs> barely a typo in, in a lot of the submissions that came in. Wow. That's impressive That's to hear. I probably shouldn't say this because this is like a really behind the scenes <laughs> thing. There were probably more typos in the <laughs> name authors than there were in the member submissions. Just yeah. <laughs> Maybe they get, you know, they start to rely on their editors, whereas the others have to do more self-editing. I don't know, but hopefully there'll be in other terrors too, if there's, you know, this yeah. kind of excitement. Well, I'll tell you, three-starred reviews from, you know, Publishers Weekly, Kirkus and Booklist. I mean, that's that's a feat. So we were really, we were kind of as proud as we are of it. We were a little gobsmacked by that. Yeah. Um, so I think that bodes well. We found out that the anthology somehow got released a week early in Barnes & Noble oh, because now yeah. we're getting pictures all over Twitter of people buying the book. And so it hasn't even gone on sale yet and bookstores are already restocking it. So that's kind of funny. Yeah. It's wow. exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. Wow. Well, we've already got ideas for the next one. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't usually read horror because, frankly, it scares me. And I got my hands on this copy first and just thought, oh, I'll just read the first one. And then I was like, oh, wow, that was really good. I'll read the second one. So I have to say to listeners out there who don't usually read horror, I found it was a really great way to be introduced to authors that I've wanted to read but been a little afraid, you know, to tackle a whole mm-hmm. novel that might be kind of gory. These were really great stories. Scary, I'm not going to lie. They're scary. They're creepy. 
I read some at night. That was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the highest compliment. You can get. <laughs> it, it is. Yes. Yeah, there was one, uh, there's a story by Stephen Graham Jones called Tiddlywinks, which is, wow, I had to put down one of his novels because it was a little too much for me at the time, and I might go back to it, who knows, but wow, Tiddlywinks was fantastic too. I mean, all of them that I've read so far are fantastic, and of course, maybe like some readers, I've gone to the names that I knew first um, Uh of of writers, but that's not necessarily always the case because the first entry is actually a poem. Yeah. Yes. And that was a surprise. Yeah. Christina Singh. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about including a poem in a horror anthology? I mean that, not that I read a ton of horror anthologies per se, but I was surprised to see the book start off with a poem. Yeah. I think um, particularly with the horror writers association, um, more so than the mystery writers or science fiction, although science fiction does a lot of poetry. Horror has a very, very deep tradition with poetry. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe, you know, some of our earliest works were works of poetry. So there's a very profound respect for the, the form in our genre. So um, Rena and I just kind of organically said, hey, let's put one or two poems in to kind of break up. Christina's poem sort of starts and gives the anthology its mood. And then Linda's poem in the middle of the book kind of is a nice separation between the two halves of the book. So we kind of used them as as almost placeholders or or markers in the the anthology. But I do think poetry is great for setting mood. Yeah. Oh, that's so smart. You know, and I, I totally didn't think about Edgar Allan Poe and that tradition of poetry and horror. That's fantastic. Yeah, and the Horror Writers Association um, also every year, I think they're up to what, Rena, volume eight now? Yeah, they eight do, or nine. Yeah, they, do they a have. Poetry showcase. Jeez. So they have an, a published book of, of dark horror poetry, and uh, it's very well received. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow, you're growing my TBR list I here. That's oh, yeah. yeah. There's a there's an award category, actually, for, for the horror poetry or dark poetry also for the Bram Stoker Award that they um, have every year. And there's a lot of really fantastic poetry coming out from the winners this this past year were the, I call them my Crane sisters, but they're uh, Lee Murray and Genevieve Flynn and Christina Singh and Angela Eureka Smith. And it's, you know, about it's Asian poetry, but, you know, in different forms. And, and it was, it was really fantastic. Oh, I have to scope that out. Yeah, I had no mm-hmm. idea. I'm going to look up all of the past <laughs> Bram Stoker poetry winners. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, talking about tradition within the genre, you know, the whole genre of horror with the other, you know, the other has often been the bad thing. And, you know, I'm a vampire fan. So, you know, I think of Dracula being the other coming and contaminating the purity of England and things like that. And, and this is a huge question, I realize. But could we talk a little bit about that tradition of the other in horror and and why your anthology is so kind of flipping things a bit, trailblazing as one of the words is uh, that I can see behind Rena. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think like you said, the, the tradition is just steeped in the idea of the other, you know, from the earliest written works to, you know, the universal monster movies. It was always, you know, fear of something. I think what you're seeing with with our anthology and a lot of the works that are coming out now is just this natural evolution of kind of flipping the script. And it's the other now taking their place as, you know, no, I'm not going to be necessarily 
you know, the monster anymore. I am, I am the victim and, or I am the survivor or, or I am, I've become, you know, a different kind of monster railing against that kind of hatred. So I think it's just others always been there and I think it always will, but I think it's just being so kind of beautifully expanded and, and explored with all these great writers. Would you say Rena? Yeah. I mean, like, like you were saying that, you know, the Dracula and vampire history, but vampire history is in Asian culture and in African cultures. And I think now we're hearing more of those stories and seeing those sort of come to life. And for me, you know, we, I've read a lot of the European vampires. And so reading now more about the the Asian vampires and how they came to be and whatnot, I, I find them fascinating. Just, you know, it's just something different. And I think the same goes for other cultures and other stories too, that a lot of stuff is just the same story, but it's different because it's told from somebody else's point of view. And so the other can sometimes be the one that you're kind of rooting for <laughs> in, in some of these stories, which, uh, you know, I thought was great. They were really well, well done. And I think that's the nice thing with an anthology because you're dealing with, you know, short stories and you're, you're getting a, a lot of different tastes in one book. And like you said, then sometimes, you know, you either go to the authors, you know, first, or, you know, you'll continue to read. And then there's going to be one that's going to kind of prompt you to go seek out another author's work that you hadn't been familiar with because you liked the short story. So it's like these little bites of otherness that I think this provides that's, uh, I think, exciting for people. Well, look how he tied in the vampire there. That was really good, Vince. <laughs> <laughs> I did not even do that intentionally, but I did like that. <laughs> well, I, I want to say, you know, I'm always a fan of reading forwards, introductions, acknowledgments. And I did start with the forward and I thought the forward that you two co-wrote was really great at talking about the concept of other and how lots of times the other was made to try to make people feel better about their own place in society. And so by broadening the idea of other, you're really helping society at large. And I really appreciated that as I was reading through the anthology. So thank you for, for doing that. We need all the help we can get. (laughs) And, And I think not only that, but I think also there are stories that will make people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think also, when you, when you force yourself into that bubble of uncomfortableness, I think that also helps you broaden your perspectives. You know, I think people are so in tune with horror. You know, oh horror, it's it's scary. It's going to make me jump, and it's going to be gory. But horror also is tension and dread, being uncomfortable. And I mean, we read some of the stories, and you know, it, we even questioned. We said, oh, is this you know, is this pushing <laughs> a little too much? And and then we kind of said, well, yeah. And we're like, okay, that's good. That's what we want. Yeah, <laughs> yeah make people squirm a little bit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and those who think they're safe are not safe. <laughs> right. I, I don't want to give any spoilers mm-hmm. about any particular stories, but wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, great stuff in this anthology. We highly recommend it, as you can tell. Oh, <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, I'm so glad. We'd love to ask a question of, of both of you, if you don't mind, um, about what you have, if you'd like to talk about it, um, what you're working on next or, or now. Uh, right, right now, I'm sort of finishing up a novel, my next novel that I'm, I've been working on for a while. I need to, to rewrite some, 
scenes in that and, and then get that out. And then the other thing that I'm working on that um, I want to work on faster is a screenplay that I'm doing. And it has to do with a famous Thai ghost story. That's something that, yeah, I, I have it in my head and I'm ready to go, but I'm just like in the middle of a move. It seems like it's moving, (laughs) Um, but now I've got my own office again. I can settle back in. And as soon as I do, I'm going to knock those two things out that seem to have been taking me forever. And now that I have her in Michigan, I'm not letting her move again. (laughs) And what about you, Vince? Yeah, I'm actually getting ready to, in uh, on August 1st, I'm doing an open call for submissions for the third volume in the Unspeakable Horror series. So this one will be subtitled Dark Rainbow Rising. Mm-hmm. And it's um, kind of a, a reflection of where we are right now in our very scary, unsettled political discourse, particularly with LGBT rights. And I kind of wanted to approach it from the sense that You know, whenever there's a great movement or great progress towards a civil right, um, you you brace yourself because you know there's going to be a backlash. And right now we are completely watching that pendulum swing back. It's swinging back hard. It's swinging back fast. So the the theme of this anthology will be that that the LGBT community is always looking over its shoulder. So um, we've kind of put it out there. I've got... I can't say who yet, but we've got some really great invited guests. Um, I try to, as I did with the first two anthologies, I try not to repeat the contributors too much, although there are some overlap, but so we're excited. This will be now the fifth anthology that I've done or co-edited. And I have to say, I'm not jaded enough yet where I, I cringe for the open call. I love open call. I love reading through the slush pile. I love discovering new and unique voices. And I think we need people in all of our fields in literature to do that. You know, the name, the reliable people are great. I mean, and I'm definitely partial to that. I mean, Stephen Graham Jones has been in three or four of my books so far. I love him. He's I'm a big fan. I'm a friend. But, you know, I want to really stretch this one a little bit and try to make it even more inclusive. You know, I look back when I started in 2008 with Unspeakable Horror and I look at the table of contents and I'm like, wow, I really didn't stretch myself too much in the diversity department. I got better in the second one, the third one now, just being more in tune with what's going on in the world and working on other terrors with Rena. I think I'm more um, more in tune with being, you know, stretching it a little bit more and bringing in more people to the table. It's important. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we agree. Oh, well, that's exciting to look forward to. All of yours, keep in touch with us. We want to hear about your screenplay, Rena. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to take us to the world premiere of the movie. We're going on the red carpet, ladies. Yes. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> We're there. <laughs> Reporting live. We'll dust off our ball gowns. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. We're so thrilled for you for these uh, star ratings you're getting on this anthology. It's really great. We give it both of our thumbs up and uh, hope it's met with great success. Thank you so much. Thank you. We especially love when non-horror readers appreciate and like something that we've done because that to us is the biggest compliment. If we can cross out of our own audience and and pull some of you in, kicking and screaming, no pun intended, we're happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there really is something for everyone in this anthology. I, I felt that way when we put it together. And I still feel that way 
when I reread the stories because we've reread them so many times and some of them still make me cry and some of them make me giggle a little bit. It's just, you know, they're really a big variety of stories, of really good stories. It's a it's a really great anthology. I, I really, like I said, I was kind of reading it with one eye closed because I'm so <laughs> creeped out by horror, but I just got drawn in. Thank you. We were really excited, too, about the cover. Yeah. Oh, my um, gosh. Yes. We yes. had a lot of um, input into the cover, and we just started kind of naming artists. And I loved, loved, loved the cover for the Marlon James books. And this yes. was actually the, the artist who did this is the artist who did the Marlon James. And that was one mm. of, I think, what, three names, Rena, we floated. One of the artists turned us down, but this uh, Pablo said yes. And we yes. were tickled when we yeah. saw this. I love this cover. Yes, it's gorgeous. And the colorways that he chose to do it in, I think is just fabulous because it's, you when you first look at it, it's really pretty, right? Mm-hmm. But when you look a little bit more, it gets a little bit kind of creepy and and interesting, and that's sort of the the whole point of the book. It's like yeah. you know, it's appearances really, and then like what's really inside the book. You know, what's it the what's it telling? Look a little closer. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're just happy because you know, obviously, covers are a huge part of marketing. And yeah, have a great cover like this, you know, especially we are not marquee names, although we have marquee names in the book. Um, we're just excited that this is really going to pop. I saw it yesterday. Yeah. I ran right to my local Barnes and Noble when I saw on Twitter it was out. I bought, we didn't even get our contributor copies yet. <laughs> no, we haven't. Picked one up and I just, you know, sat in the parking lot and stared at it. It was so cool. They really did a gorgeous job. The whole yeah. team at William Morrow, Harper Collins, yes. um, Jamie Levine, our, our editor, Kelly, yeah. uh, our publicist, they've just done a magnificent job. They really yes. have. Amazing. And it was really cool to get input on the cover because you always hear you know that well i could i didn't have a choice or especially with the with a big five publisher it was really cool to have some input in that and we're happy i mean we loved the draft when we saw it but we probably could have at that point said ah what if we did this or what if we did that which like rena said is kind of unheard of um so we were very grateful for the experience Mm, yeah it's great cool yeah it's great Love it. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.